You're listening to That'll Preach. We're back with another show, continuing our trek into the book Miracles by C.S. Lewis. Great book. If you haven't picked it up, you need to pick it up. I'm Brian. I'm joined by Paul, my co-host, live, because Paul actually has a full-time job in Michigan at the esteemed Hillsdale College. He's a professor there. so That almost sounded like it was a shock or surprise that I had a full-time job. It is a shock. <laughs> Paul, Paul has a full-time job. Yeah, Paul, yeah right, exactly. <laughs> he was a student Paul for so long. Paul finally left all the pyramid schemes. <laughs> he, he, he stopped selling uh, Mary Kay. Mary Kay and <laughs> Arbonne and all that stuff and finally decided to make something uh, make something of his life beyond that. Mm. But uh, Paul is here live. And uh, if you haven't noticed, and hopefully you haven't, maybe maybe that's how good the technology is today. But the, the past few episodes... Well, actually, this is we've already recorded a couple episodes, so <laughs> we've been here for eight hours. Yeah, yeah. A couple a couple <laughs> weeks ago, you might have heard some uh, old episodes, and uh, that we actually did those long distance. Mm-hmm. We did them through a Zoom chat. We just zoomed each other and then recorded that, pulled the audio from it, and that's our podcast. People so, are going to be so confused about our dynamic. I know they have no idea what's in person, what's Zoom. That's good. That's yeah, good. We'll just that, keep that, that, that's a high quality show you're listening to. Mm. But thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you are tuning in because you like listening to interesting conversation and Paul and I. I mean there's are no not more, interesting. There's so no go more listen interest, somewhere else. Yeah, hold on, marketing here. Okay. There's no more interesting game in town than our witty banter. In Tallahassee? In Tallahassee. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. it's probably true. In Leon County in general. But uh, we're doing a series again, like I mentioned before, on Miracles by C.S. Lewis. And if you haven't read this book, it's probably Lewis's most philosophical book. He's writing this book to uh, poke holes in the arguments of some of the skeptics of his day. And uh, some of these arguments are probably familiar. Um Basically, a, 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 a skepticism for anything that's supernatural or automatically assuming that nature is all there is. It can't be interrupted, mm-hmm. uh, that, there, that it is childish and foolish to believe in a supernatural reality, uh, thinking about God. Mm-hmm. Um, not even necessarily Christian in general, but just anything beyond the physical world. It seems kind of foolish to think that that would exist. And Lewis is writing this in a time when technology is booming and Humanity and society is having this sense of of self-aggrandizement, a sense that we can figure things out. It's a good word. We don't really need anything beyond the physical world to make sense of our life. And we found that in the decades following, that's not true. That these aren't just musings of these abstract philosophies. Like, why are we even talking about this? You know, why is Lewis writing a book about this? Well, it's because he recognizes that if we assume that all of life is just this sort of machine or that you don't have to reflect on the nature of human dignity or what it means to be human or how our lives should be ordered, then you're something's going to fill that void. You're going to think that your life is all about production. You're going to think your life is all about making money or pleasure, all these different things. If you don't purposely reflect upon what your life is actually made for. So I think this is something that Lewis talks about a lot. He's trying to make the Christian faith not only compelling or believable or plausible, but beautiful, desirable, something that you would want to be true. And I think he does a little bit about of, of this in Miracles. And uh, we've been covering a lot of ground, um, but we're going to hit a really, really cool chapter here. It's the chapter where he talks about the grand miracle. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, these referring to the incarnation. And if you've listened to our podcast before, you know we love talking about the incarnation. And uh, but sometimes the incarnation, maybe in evangelical circles, doesn't really get the publicity it deserves. What do you think about that, Paul? Because we emphasize the crucifixion and the resurrection, or I think it's just not something that we attach to salvation. Oh yeah, that's true. We think that Jesus came to be a man just so he could die on the cross and right. be raised. Now that's certainly a huge part of his mission. Almost as if the incarnation is a vehicle for the crucifixion. Right. And the it Passion was just Week. sort, of, or just sort of like a big trick. Right. Like, not a trick, but like a a display of God's power just for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was no redemptive purpose in the fact that he was a man and that he lived a certain life. Mm-hmm. You almost see it as like Jesus just came. Uh, he could have come for a week right. or two weeks. And he then just to, died. Right, he could have right. just died. But for some reason, God chose to have him grow up and go through school and be raised by parents and have a community and a job and right. basically not start in ministry for three decades until he was 30. And people will sort of give it lip service like, well, he had to live a perfect life to fulfill right. the righteousness that it's we utilitarian. failed to do. Yeah. And, but it's so much more <clears throat> than that. Exactly. And I think Lewis starts to touch on that, which is consistent with his other works that he mm-hmm. talks about this. But if you want to just boil it down, we want to talk about why the miracle, the incarnation of God putting on flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, why the incarnation is the grand miracle. Mm-hmm. It's more than just this display of power. It is, it is a miracle that teaches us something about God. And remember, this book, Miracles, isn't like, do you see, you know, the Virgin Mary on a piece of toast? Or something like that. <laughs> it's about the possibility of God actually disclosing something about what he's like mm-hmm. through supernatural acts, through the suspension of the natural order. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get our attention at something. And the incarnation is the chief miracle that he grabs our attention. Well, I mean, right from the start, Lewis says the central miracle is the incarnation. And Christians say that God became man. Every miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this, just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a a particular place and moment the character and significance of the incarnation. So basically everything makes sense in light of the incarnation. Every miracle, every act of God is either pointing to, stemming from, or a result of the incarnation. That's really the case that he's trying to make in this chapter. That this is where we get that famous quote, I see this in the same way that I don't see the sun, but I see by it. Uh, So too, through Christianity, I see everything else. The incarnation, he thinks, is the proper lens through which we see the world. And he actually gives us an argument for why the incarnation is existentially um, powerful. How it how it makes sense of all of nature and these different tendencies that we see in nature. Well, consider something like the incarnation with regard to the resurrection. So you kind of have a head scratching moment where you're like, the grand miracle of Christianity is the resurrection, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what we celebrate Easter for, and it is a grand miracle. But the resurrection is powerful because it's not just the resurrection of some angel; it's the resurrection of a man. Mm-hmm. Of a human man. Jesus Christ is raised as a human biological male, you know, in a redeemed body and and everything that comes with that. But 
even the resurrection is given its meaning because of the incarnation, hmm. right? The resurrection of humanity was started by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. But that the only tie is that Jesus Christ holds the same human nature that we do. So if Jesus was raised from the dead, then humanity itself mm-hmm. will be raised. Uh, that those who trust in Christ, the new humanity God is making, will be raised too. So yeah, the incarnation is, is huge and uh, something that colors and is the way, th- it's, it's the lens through which we see every other doctrine mm-hmm. basically in Christianity. I mean, I, I, I don't know, well, I mean, that sounds a little totalizing, but. I mean, it is really like, yeah. it, if so if creation is the stage for the incarnation, like creation is a means to an end. And this is one way that the reformers thought about the incarnation, that God created to display himself via the incarnation, that, that that was somehow more maximizing of his glory. And so, and we'll talk about this because Lewis talks about this later, that this idea that the incarnation was not a plan B, but it was always God's intention from the start, that a creation that was fallen and redeemed is better than a creation that never fell and never had to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. And Lewis talks about this a lot. And he shows, he uses this to illustrate the prominence of the incarnation. But all throughout this chapter, he's actually giving an argument for why you should want the incarnation to be true. He's trying to paint a picture that all of nature has this dying and and rising capacity. And we see dying and rebirth as a cycle in nature. And so the incarnation is a fitting way of God showing himself to us by doing the dying and rebirth in the most profound way possible. So we grow up and we see these things happen all around us. God's designed a world of death and rebirth, mm-hmm. dying trees and right. trees growing. Jesus here says like when a seed dies, seed, something right. else comes out of it. Yep. And it's all of that is like preparing the way for when Jesus does that, we go, oh, we understand what this means. Mm-hmm. Now, when you think about like Hume, so he, he talks about David Hume and, and yep. his objections to miracles mm-hmm. and basically saying that they're so improbable, they're they're impossible, mm-hmm. right? Or by definition, they're improbable. And um, Lewis says this, he says, if the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. So he's talking about the incarnation. Mm-hmm. The very thing that the whole story has been about. Since it happened only once, it is by Hume's standards infinitely improbable. But then the whole history of the earth has also happened only once. Is it therefore incredible? So... I'm like, that sounds nice, but how do you deal with Hume's argument that, that, that we shouldn't believe miracles? Yeah, I think, I think what Lewis is saying is that just because something is really improbable doesn't mean it's not possible. It doesn't mean that you're irrational for believing it to be true. And again, this comes down to your initial presuppositions and your assumptions about nature. If you believe that nature is all there is, then yeah, when someone tells you, hey, a miracle took place, this violation of nature took place, you should be skeptical. And because you think that all that is, is space, time, matter, and energy. But if if there is a God, and this is what he says over and over and over, if there is a God, then you have to admit the possibility of interventions. Right. And so it really just comes down to, you can't look at pieces of evidence in isolation. You can't just say, well, here's evidence for a miracle and, and come away thinking either, yes, it did happen or no, it didn't unless you have the right backdrop or the right framework for how to interpret that. Um, And so Lewis is saying, if God exists, then miracles are possible. We should want miracles to exist. 
And also, miracles, we have to understand them in this qualified sense that they have to be like part of a narrative. They have to be um, pushing some story forward and giving us something larger to see about God's nature and character and not just these random one-offs or random like the the ugly clump of words in the poem or like but that that's not what miracles are supposed to look like um and so this is why he thinks the incarnation if we can show the incarnation happened then a lot of the other miracles sort of make sense in light of that and so that's what he's trying to do in this chapter he's effectively trying to give us an argument for the incarnation or why it's fitting that God became human and not even just fitting that he became human, but that it is rare or, or that it's, it's, it is unique. It oh, yeah, is it's unique. the only instance of its and kind. That's right? an interesting thread that he kind of goes down where it's like, man, the fact that people, that the incarnation only happened once and it seems so improbable is like the point. Like mm-hmm. if we say that it's possible, then it could happen, but let's say it's a very small percentage. Well, isn't that fitting that God would do that? Like right, yeah. he would make it rare so that we would draw our attention to it. Right. And so the skepticism is, it's overreaching. Like like a Christian and an atheist could be skeptical about somebody saying that, you know, they saw Bigfoot or I don't even know, mm-hmm. like they saw some alien, whatever, all these things. Okay, right. yeah. But when it comes to something that's so theologically loaded um, and something that is a revelation of God that has a, that has a deep meaning attached to it. Mm-hmm. Well then I think the skepticism kind of turns on its head where you go, well, that, 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 that never happens. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't there a category for things, strange things happening and they're so rare that you have to pay attention to it. And maybe that's, that's the, that's the entire point. Yeah. And, and also I think we've emphasized a lot like the the improbability of miracles and the rarity and the uniqueness and things like that. But also, I'm just thinking back to when we read Athanasius and the Incarnation. Part of his his argument for the Incarnation and the Resurrection is, look, like we're not just saying this Jesus came, died, and resurrected, and, th- and there's no evidence for that. He's saying, look at all of the work of transformation in people's lives. If someone tells me, hey, look, Here's, here's a religion that is, you know, there's some miraculous event attached to it. You should believe it. I'm going to go, I mean, I don't know. Like that's not, that's not, that's not good evidence. That's not going to compel me. But if I am exposed to person after person, transformed lives, people who are telling me I once was this and now I'm totally transformed. I'm something other than what I was. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was uh, wicked and now I'm clean and that kind of transformation of people's lives, all of those pieces of evidence begin to add up. And now that gives more credibility to the story that this person who was dead is now alive and working to transform people's lives. And there's tangible evidence of that. I think that makes the case stronger. So it's not just in isolation, someone telling you, hey, look, here's a miracle that happened. Here's a violation of a law of nature. It's look, Here's this thing that happened and look at its ramifications, look at the results, look at the things that we can test and see in the world. And you get a, a pretty cumulative case for, for Christianity. It's not the sort of thing that you can look at in isolation, but it is compelling when you look at the kinds of things that the risen Lord does in people's lives. And sometimes it's all you need, something to be compelling. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily need to be slam dunk. And we talked about the past few episodes where... Sometimes when you think about apologetics, it's just kind of like gotcha, mm-hmm. you know, and and there's a lack of drawing people into the beauty of the gospel, but also 
it becomes just this technical. I mean, and there's a there's room for it. I mean, you need to have these technical defenses of the Christian faith and all that stuff. Yeah. But Lewis is 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 I he's not really aiming at that. He's aiming broadly at the general populace, trying to get them to think, to rethink of the things they assume, and to just you know leave a little pebble in their shoe that bothers mm-hmm. them a little bit as they go on in their day. Um, there's one selection or one quote that we both were drawn to when, mm-hmm. when Lewis says, "In the Christian story, God descends to reascend." And later on he says, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. So there you go. I mean, the incarnation is God descending to be like us mm-hmm. without sin, but also into the world that we're of, of brokenness and fallenness right. and sin that we're in. And he goes down to come up that in his resurrection, he is bringing forth the resurrection of the world, mm-hmm. right? That he is bringing new life as he is raised and so humanity can find an identification with him if you, if you choose to identify with christ if you believe in christ that becomes your story mm-hmm. the story of death and resurrection and, and it's a story that is not unfamiliar to us that's right. lewis's point that it's it's the story of all of nature that we see this theme that things cannot become what they are supposed to be unless they die first and this is what happens with seeds this is what happens in natural processes and Lewis's point, it's again, it's not a knockdown argument, but he's saying, look at how fitting God's story of redemption is, that it takes the mundane everyday experience, the run-of-the-mill natural processes that we're so used to, and he uses that exact same kind of mechanism and process to save us, that he comes down, he dies, and out of his, his coming and dying and being pulled up, he takes all of us with him. He gives the example of the strong man who has to stoop to to lift up the stone and is buried by the stone, but he comes up triumphantly or the man who dives into the lake to save a precious pearl and comes back up. And that, that model of, or that picture of the incarnation is what we see in the gospels of God coming down, condescending the picture of humility and the suffering servant who leaves everything behind to stoop, to save us through that dying and rebirth. Um, and it is it is a pretty compelling picture. I think it's a beautiful picture. And like you said, the goal is to try to get people to see the picture as beautiful. And if that's true, I think people are like ninety percent of the way there. If you think the Christian story is compelling and beautiful, that is that's that's huge in and of itself. What do you think about when Lewis starts bringing up the nature god, or the what is he the the, the corn god? Oh or yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I mean, because there's a flip side where he says, you know. All we've been sort of primed to believe the death and resurrection narrative by the things in nature. Right, right. And maybe mm-hmm. even the stories of mythology. Mm-hmm. And it's even other religions have a death and resurrection narrative. Right. And so he's like, well, maybe God could be priming the pump, so to speak, for the incarnation. When that happens, we go, oh, this mm-hmm. is the story all along. Or it could be they just stole this. This yeah. is plagiarism. Right. Christians just stole like this, these ancient myths, mm-hmm. you know, of Osiris or, you know. Yep. Adonis. Adonis. And all these things. And, yep. So how does Lewis deal with that? And you hear this all the time. If you spent any time on an atheist online forum, as I did way too much time doing, hmm. uh, you see this kind of, like, this is just the standard objection against Jesus and the resurrection. It's like, look, the Persians had it, the Egyptians had it. And so Christianity is just a, a ripoff. 
you would spend time on the atheist. Uh, tell us about those dark days. Uh, those were my days where I was frequently visiting YouTube comment sections. And now I never even bother because they're horrible. Like if you want to see like the cesspool of humanity, like just go to a YouTube comment what would you section. Say? You would just comment on different people's posts and stuff? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What would you, would you argue and be I like, would argue with atheists and I would, I was uh, just, yeah, I was defender so combative and yeah, no, thankfully I mellowed out. Now I'm just crazy philosopher. So what, did you, did you, uh, <laughs> would you win any arguments? You know, that's what it's all probably about. Probably not. I probably like, led to people's lack of conversions. Oh gosh. I know. Thankfully there's grace. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, it is, it's an objection that you hear all the time. And so Osiris was the ancient Egyptian God who like ended up having sex with his sister Isis and whatever, but he was killed by a vengeful lover and he resurrects. And so from that resurrected body, um, he copulates with Isis and then all of it's like a fertility kind of myth and it's like a one-to-one correlation with the flooding of the Nile. And you see this in like lots of uh, other religions in in Greece and in Persia. And you could say, yeah, look, the Jesus story is just one other version of that. It's just more updated. But Lewis brings out a pretty interesting observation that in those stories, the God dying, it's something happening to that God. Okay. The the god is a passive participant in the death. The god they're like is a not, sacrifice. Or something. They're a sacrifice, and someone they don't they're not in they, control they don't of the picture. They want to do it, or right. It's not voluntary. Yeah. Yeah. Osiris is being killed by the vengeful lover. Right. There's no like out. There's nothing outside of the story. Adonis is killed, and then he's resurrected by someone fashioning his body again out of his heart. Like that is not the Christian picture. And if if you think that that's what's happening in the death of Jesus on the cross you are vastly missing God's providence. That all of this was orchestrated. Every single detail of the crucifixion was God enacting God's death. That the whole story was in God's control. That God orchestrated the death of God to save humanity. It's not, God is not a passive recipient of death on the cross. God orchestrates and brings that about and could have avoided it, but chose not to. So God was in control every single moment of that situation. So Jesus is, you know, like when he says in John, he's like, when the people finally show up in the mob to arrest him, he's Mm -hmm. like, well, your time's come. So I'm letting you take me. You could have taken me at any point when I was preaching out in the temple and you didn't because I didn't let you. Well, he told Peter, I could summon a legion of angels if I wanted to, you know. And Peter's like, "Uh, why don't you? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So the difference between what Lewis calls the corn king gods, which are Osiris and Adonis and these sort of fertility cults, and the Christian story is that Jesus is not a passive recipient of the cross. Jesus is actively making the cross happen and choosing that that's the story he wants to tell. He is the author who's completely in charge of the narrative, who writes himself into the story as one of the characters and decides that that's the way he's going to redeem the characters in the story. And that, that is not just, it's not just a subtle difference. It's pretty obvious, like when you think about it, but it's, it's crucial. And it tells you that the God of Christianity is not like these other gods. Hmm. The story is radically different. So what, I, what it sounds like you're saying and what Lewis is saying is that uh, it's a very superficial similarity. Mm-hmm. And if you make that contrast, or if you try to say, Christianity is just a remix version of some other ancient pagan myth. Mm-hmm. You're missing the uniqueness of the fact that Jesus gave himself up. 
Right. It was a voluntary sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It was something that just happened to him. Right. He was a willing participant in it, and he knew the ultimate goal. Like you said, the, the plan of God to have the death of God, mm-hmm. which can God die? I mean, it's, I, it's, right, it's, right, a, right. it's, a, it's a tricky, tricky deal. But uh, it, it is also fascinating how, and Lewis brings up this point where he's like, man, Jesus, you know, if he really based his whole deal off other religions as an illusion, why mm-hmm. did he like mention them? Right. You know, that would have helped his case. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. In right. fact, he doesn't even seem to be aware of these other pagan myths or religions. And uh, so it, it's, it's, and it, it, it ties into some of human nature. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it actually is, it, in our modern day, it feels normal to sort of be like atheist or something like that. Like you sort of just go, well, of course we don't believe in the supernatural or gods. Mm. But in reality, if you ask most people, we're not atheists. Most people are vaguely spiritual. They believe Mm -hmm. in some kind of airy, fairy, spiritual, higher power, creator thing like that. And uh, so we're actually geared to worship things and to believe in gods and to actually seek the supernatural, I, I, I would, I would, assume so Mm -hmm. lewis says this if people are going to believe in a god at all we ask what other kind would they believe in but the answer of history is almost any other kind Mm. right we mistake our privileges for our instincts just as one meets ladies who believe their own refined manners to be natural to them they don't remember being taught and so our fixation is that on the one hand we're driven toward these myths and these Mm -hmm. stories they hit a primal instinct in us but on the other hand, we reject the Christ story because of the sinfulness of our hearts. We right. kind of don't want that story. Mm-hmm. And what do you think that is? Uh, I mean, it, it tells us something about ourselves that we don't want to hear. Namely, that we're far more selfish and self-absorbed and terrible than we think we are. And that the solution, one, that the solution is pretty radical and that we have to be accountable for our lives to someone else. And that seems... Anytime you introduce accountability into the story, you lose converts. But anyone can sign on to an airy fairy God who's just even doing things in the world and is, you know, taking care of whatever. But a God who tells you, you know, you need to live a certain way and makes demands of you and, and holds you accountable to conscience and, and, and justice, that's where things get, you know, pretty, pretty different. Well, Lewis has a great quote in, in, in Miracles where he says, an impersonal God well and good a subjective god of beauty truth and goodness inside our own heads better still a formless life force surging through us a vast power which we can tap best of all and i think of these Mm -hmm. three it's like yeah we have that like impersonal god who just sort of winds up the clock of creation and lets it go and doesn't get involved sure great or a subjective god of beauty and truth sort of the inner god inside of us the -hmm. new agey stuff oh it feels good but even better is, is God as is his power source, mm. you know, that, that, that surges through us. And he says, well, but look, Christianity is not offering any of those. What mm-hmm. Christianity offers is, but God himself. Mm-hmm. And he says, God himself alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband. That is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. 
We never meant it to come to that. Or still, supposing he had found us. Mm-hmm. We don't like a God that meddles and tampers. And the incarnation is the ultimate, quote unquote, meddling and tampering. And it's a subgroup of miracles which shows that there's a God who cannot be contained by us. I love he's approaching us at an infinite speed. But also this, I love that, I love that imagery of these kids. But they're playing make-believe. They're mm-hmm. playing burglars or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And then suddenly they hear real footsteps and they mm-hmm. go, the game is not a game anymore. Right. There's a real reality. We're playing this game of religion. You know, I'm I'm spiritual, not religious. I, you know, oh, I've got this personal thing. It's really cool, all that stuff. We're, we're playing this game and then suddenly we bump into the real Jesus and it's shocking, mm-hmm. right? Because this thing that we were playing with is actually real. And that's what you'd expect. If you really were interfacing with God, it should be disorienting. It should make you reform the way you view the world. Mm-hmm. It should be disturbing a little bit. Yeah. And I think Lewis is in a beautiful paragraph tapping into that. You really love that quote. It's a great this quote. This is like the fourth time I've heard you say it. Well, it's tattooed. For all our listeners out there, I'm looking at Brian's book. He's got so much it's orange tattooed highlighting. on my chest. <laughs> like every other page. Exactly. I, no, it, it is good. Um, I want to. I want to circle back to the idea that the incarnation is is something that that is radical and it recapitulates nature, and it's something that breaks into our sphere of what we thought was what, a previously what closed re- system. Re- recapitulate me. Like it. 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 It retells the story of nature. In a, in a new way, so like the dying and 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 rising or dying and rebirth, um, Lewis says that there can also be a temptation there to see ourselves as overly special because of the incarnation, and he acknowledges that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. He even says at one point, I'm not going to be embarrassed to admit that humanity occupies a special place in creation, as is evidenced by the incarnation. But he gives a slightly different reason why that's the case. And he says, it's not because we're actually special, but it's because of how sinful we are that God decides to become incarnate to save us. So that he actually throws out a thought experiment and says, even if there are aliens and other races, the fact that God becomes human is probably evidence that we're the most wicked and sinful of all the other (laughs) rational creatures out there. And so it tells us just how bad we are that God goes to these lengths to become one of us. And this is where he gets to that interesting idea that creation was for the incarnation, not the incarnation for creation. Okay, explain that a little bit. We sometimes think that the incarnation is God's backup plan to save creation. Right, like, oh man, they sinned. What am I going to do? Oh, I'll do this. Right. And so that's one way to think of it. But another way to think of it is actually the other way around, that, that God wanted to display his glory through the incarnation to a creation that was fallen. And so I'm I'm just going to quote from Lewis here where he says that God is not merely mending nor simply restoring a status quo for redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than merely unfallen humanity would have been more glorious than any unfallen race is now. If at this moment, the night sky conceals any such, the greater the sin, the greater the mercy, the deeper, the depth, the brighter, the rebirth. And this super added glory will, with true vicariousness, exalt all creatures and those who have never fallen will thus will thus bless Adam's fall. So blessing Adam's fall. So there's something about creation that falls and is redeemed 
that is more glorious than merely a creation that stays on the right track. And if that's true, then that means that all of the brokenness that we see in the world is for God's glory, is for a purpose. It's not merely a second rate or a plan B. That ties into a lot of questions about God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he, he, so he creates, basically he creates the stage for the story he wants to tell. Creation is the stage for the story of redemption he wants to tell. Right. And it's a stage for the incarnation, like, mm -hmm. you're, like you're saying. Yeah. Now, how, how do you take Lewis when he says regarding free will, a, a chill <laughs> dun, just went dun, down dun. Paul's spine. I right? just twitched. The sin, both of men and angels, was rendered possible by the fact that God gave them free will. Thus, surrendering a portion of his omnipotence, it is again a death-like or descending movement, because he saw that from a world of free creatures, even though they fell, he could work out a deeper happiness and a fuller splendor than any world of automata, automata, whatever, yeah. would admit. So it's basically saying, if God didn't give us free will, we'd all be these robots. It's better for us to give it. It's better to give us free will and screw it up so He can redeem us than for us never to make the mistake because we have no free will. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, we've talked about this lots of times before, but those are not the only two alternatives. It's not either we're robots or either God is playing dice and risking. I'm half robot, so it's Brian like, is half robot. Exactly. So I'm like, yeah, there's definitely another option here. That's right. Yeah. You, there's a Cyborg. third way. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, those in the sort of historic, classical, uh, if you want to call it the reformed view, think of humans as sort of like cyborgs, right? There is an in-between between this radically free, oh my gosh, risky, <laughs> and You just robots. bit that bullet. I did. We are cyborgs. <laughs> I mean, there, there is, my point was to illustrate, there is a middle way between that sort of, we're not automata, we're not robots, and neither is God playing risk. And Lewis doesn't think that God is playing risk. This is where I think Lewis is being a little bit inconsistent. He thinks that God knows that humanity will fall. Right, he just and God said, designed a creation he, he, that will he, fall. He just said yeah. that creation was the stage for the incarnation. The yeah. incarnation is a response to the fall. So it is a little confusing here. And because and, and Lewis says God surrenders a portion of his omnipotence. His omnipotence is his all-powerfulness, right? right? Mm -hmm. or, or his, I don't know, is that the best way to put yeah, it? Yeah, He surrenders a little bit of that? That's yeah. a little weird, right? Maybe he thinks that God... Is, he's not talking about the incarnation either. He's talking no. about God. Yeah, it seems like he's just talking about God outside of the incarnation. Yeah. That maybe God is not exercising his full power to give us the ability sure, to, yeah, to, he, to have he, free will. He's like, he's like holding back his power to let us be free. I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, that is a little, that like, like, like God's power is in this tank and he puts it at 75 so that we can have 25% free will or something like that. that yeah. That's what it feels like. Um. And so that was the one line. I'm like, what are you going at here, Clive? Yeah. Clive Staples Lewis. I right? think I think on, on free will, he's a little bit he's a little bit loose and fast. This almost sounds open theist, doesn't it? Like I was I was gonna say possibly the the language of God relinquishing or not exercising all of his omnipotence. Yeah, that is the route that an open theist typically goes. Because he sees he, <clears throat> he knows that. Um, he sees that a world of free creatures is going to fall, but then he knows that he can work it out. So to me, that sounds like he, it's not guaranteed that they will fall. And 
even if they do, he can, it, it's sort of like he, God's a really good planner, but he's not determining things. He's sort of looking out and going, well, if it goes south, there's a couple things I can do, which kind of goes against what Lewis was saying earlier, that, that the yeah. incarnation isn't plan B. Yeah, I don't think Lewis is an open theist. No. But no. I also think he, I don't think he is fully clear about what he thinks about free will. Right. This seems to just sort of contradict a yeah. little bit. Yeah some of his other stuff, mm -hmm. right? Because if the incarnation was God's plan from the beginning, that implies that the fall was God's plan from the beginning. Mm -hmm. That implies that it wasn't the free choices of creatures, but rather God's determining will that ensured that the fall would happen. Now that, I mean, if you want to hear more about this, go to our uh, Problem of Evil series. You can mm -hmm. find it on the Four Weeks Midtown podcast. We'll probably repost it. We've yeah. been doing some throwbacks, so it'll probably come up on this Throwback. channel. Uh, a couple times, but um, again, there we go. Uh, another area where we would take exception to the great C.S. Lewis. To, re to redeem C.S. Lewis a little bit though, I want to ah, just the, the quick, uh, he ends the, the chapter by talking about death and he, Lewis loves to be subversive. He loves to find these subversive themes in nature and show how they connect to Christianity. So the dying and the rebirth is one of them. And then he also talks about death, how death is both like the great demise for humans, but also God's like secret weapon to destroy death itself. And so he says, death is Satan's great power and also God's great weapon. Mm. It is holy and unholy, our supreme disgrace and our only hope, the thing Christ came to conquer and the means by which he conquered. And that Lewis just has such an eye for seeing the fittingness of God's activity in redemption history, that God takes the themes that we see in nature, the processes that we see in nature, and uh, comes to us using the same kinds of mechanisms in ways that we can understand, and even uses the thing that is our great disgrace and demise to destroy the thing that is our great demise and disgrace to begin with. And so the chief, like, the chief problem with humanity is that we die. Mm -hmm. We're not supposed to be that way. And what better way of saving us than God coming and dying and taking the curse of death onto himself so that humanity can be and rescued. And breaking the curse. Yeah. He goes through it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't remove death. He, he tunnels right through it and comes out the other side. There you go. And we too, mm -hmm. if we're in Christ, we're united to Christ, exactly. we tunnel through death yep. up the other side. Mm -hmm. It's union with Christ. It's the incarnation. And yeah. so, yeah. and this is what I try to like tell people with Christianity. It is about being human. It's mm -hmm. not about like stopping your humanity so you can be some kind of spiritual person. <laughs> or it cyborg. Is, yeah, or cyborg. It It is the rec the the reclaiming of humanity by God, mm -hmm. primarily through the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Christ to renew us, to make us what we were originally created to be. And man, that, I mean, that is, that instinctually hits us in a different way. Cause we're like, yeah, there's something glorious to being human. And actually part of what humans are made to be is dependent upon God. And, and, and Lewis mm -hmm. makes, makes that point as well, that we are dependent creatures. Right. Uh, that we we are weak, that we are requiring someone beyond ourselves to live and move and have our being. Yeah. And we should embrace that. And embracing that is part of what faith is of going, man, I, I need God to do something for me that I can't do for myself. I need him to conquer death for me. Mm -hmm. I need to, him to conquer sin for me. And Lewis, again, like you said, he has an eye for that. Mm -hmm. He gets that. He yeah, sees he's great. That. Mm -hmm. And he's a great storyteller and he sees the grand story around us. And even when we use the word story, it's sort of like we're not saying this is how we spin the history of the world to make it 
sound cool. Right. <laughs> We're saying God did something. Yeah. This is not a story that we would have created. Mm-hmm. And that's the, but, but then you look back at how God tells the story through the death and, and resurrection of his son, the incarnation of the son. You look back and you're like, man, I wouldn't have planned it that way because I don't know what God knows or I, I'm not that smart. Right. But now looking back, it's so clear how that was the way it would happen. Hmm. It's so clear how I would not have planned for death to be the instrument that God uses to defeat death. Mm-hmm. And yet, in hindsight, when you look at how it comes together, you're like, that makes sense. Yeah. Right? It makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, very uh, great uh, chapter, especially when you consider, you know, we're the, the Advent season, the holiday season, mm. Christmas happening. It hasn't happened yet by the time of this recording, but by the time it's released, it probably would have already <laughs> happened. But... Uh, Again, just meditating and thinking about the importance of the incarnation as the great miracle, the grand miracle Mm -hmm. that colors and shapes all the other ones around. Thank you guys for listening to this podcast. I hope you guys subscribe, share with your friends, and we'll be back next week. 